Well, last weekend was quite a, quite a time in the Toon household. We made pilgrimage over to Spokane so that we could watch Rachel as she went through graduation from Whitworth University. I was invited as a, a, as a trustee and as a, a parent of a grad to sit up on the stage for the ceremony. I really didn't think that through when I said yes. So for two hours and 40 minutes, I had to behave myself. I couldn't do a crossword puzzle. I couldn't play Angry Birds on my phone. I couldn't make snide remarks about something that someone was saying. I just had to sit there with thousands of eyes looking and and behave like an adult for two hours and 40 minutes as 603 students walked across the stage and received their diploma. I'm going to think more carefully next time. But it was an awesome time, as you might imagine. Lots of electricity, lots of excitement. And it was worth it to me because I got a chance when Rachel crossed across the stage after she had diploma in hand, I had the chance to, to jump up and grab her and get a little Kodak moment. Here's the picture that we captured. Isn't that cool? So the ceremony was about an hour longer than I think it needed to be, but it was still filled with energy and filled with excitement and and expectation. But there was something else that was in the air. It was a question that I think was never far from anyone's heart, especially from many parents' minds and hearts. You know what that question was? What now? What now? We've completed four years at a, at a great college. We've written lots of checks with lots of zeros on them. Many people have amassed a good deal of, of debt. And now we have these wonderful education and credentials to prepare them for what? Yes, what? More education, maybe. Rachel heads off to seminary next fall in, in Boston. But then what? After the last degree is completed, after the last diploma is handed, the last handshake is received, what are we hoping for? Yes, a paycheck. We are hoping for work, that we're going to get something back on this investment that we have been making. That's what we're talking about, our our sermon series on work. And it's And it has resonated with this congregation. I don't know why I'm surprised at the way that it seems to have connected, but it has. I shouldn't be surprised because we who are followers of Christ, one of the things that matters to us is how do we make use of that 40 or 50 or 60 hours of of our week? Often the church doesn't even pay very much attention to it, to our, to our shame. We kind of ignore everything that happens except for what's going on on a Sunday morning. And if we really are disciples of Jesus, we want our whole lives to be integrated, don't we? We want to break down that sacred, secular divide. We want what we do Monday through Friday to, to matter as much to God as what we do for an hour on Sunday morning or Wednesday nights, don't we? Yes, we do. I know we do. We want to know what God thinks about our work. And so we've been preaching about it. In the first sermon we found out, I hope to our delight, that our God is a blue-collar God. He's not far away and distant. He is a, a God who gets His hands dirty, who plants gardens and who shapes human beings out of soil with His hands. He has dirt under His fingernails. What kind of a God is that? And then the next week we discovered that we are made in the image of this God. And so naturally, if we are made in the image of this working God, then we were created to 
work and it is not a punishment. It is, it is not a necessary evil. Work, as we discover in Genesis, is a part of the blessedness of creation. And then last week we heard a great message from Pastor Megan as she began to talk about a definition of work. What is work? And she kind of laid the foundation for us really for the first half of that definition. And you might remember it goes like this. Work is doing something with what God gives you. Pretty basic, isn't it? In fact, though, it's very foundational. Work is doing something with what God gives you. Obviously, the Christian foundation for work, and, and frankly, beloved, the Christian foundation for all of life, and not everyone in this room really, really believes this. Here it is. Here is the Christian foundation for work, the Christian foundation for life, and here it is. Everything we have is a gift from God. If you don't believe that, you don't really understand Scripture, and you will never understand Christian view of work. Everything we have is a gift of a gracious God. Everything. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, they, they don't create something out of nothing. They take the stuff that God has given them, the raw materials of life, and we, they do something with it. They don't create the plants, but they tend these trees, these plants. They care for the ones that God created and gave them. They don't create the animals, but Adam is invited to name the animals that God has created. The starting point for a Christian theology of work is that God creates, and then, amazingly, we are invited to play in his sandbox. He invites us to be a part of his creativity. To organize and arrange and subdue and bring under dominion and to prune and to tend and to name and to harvest. That is our privilege as those who have been created in his image. And when we use the words, work is doing something with what God gives you, we understand that in pretty broad terms, don't we? To some, God has given toilets to be plunged. And beds to be made, as you heard about last week. To some, God has given airplanes to fly. To some, God has given young minds to be shaped and bodies to be healed and houses to be built. The starting point for a healthy definition of work is to realize that all of us have been given gifts and passions and abilities. And then we have been given an arena in which we have the chance to use our gifts and our passions and abilities. And the degree to which our abilities, passions and gifts align with that work in the arena... That, that delights us and gives us a sense of purpose and well-being, doesn't it? Most of you saw that, the, the classic movie, Chariots of Fire. Do you remember the words of Eric Little, the, the Olympian, who says, God made me fast, and when I run, what? I feel his pleasure. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And when we do what is the equivalent of running in our life, our passion, we feel God's pleasure. The revolutionary message of the Bible is this. When you work, when you do something with what God has given you, that is a holy undertaking. It can be an act of worship. Every bit as spiritual as me getting up here to preach a sermon on a Sunday morning. I really mean that. And you do not know how I long for all of you, my beloved, to understand this and to believe it yourself. You teachers and you pilots and you secretaries and you plumbers and you housewives and you custodians and you businessmen and computer geniuses 
and you students and you accountants and you soldiers and doctors, you retirees, you nurses, you truck drivers, you salesmen. Who did I leave out? If I didn't list yours, call it out. Call it out nice and loud. I'm getting old. There we go. All of those, all of you, God has created you to do that. And when you do it, you bring glory to Him. It is worship. It is a holy calling. That is what I hope we will leave this. If nothing else, we'll have the sense that that to which I've been called midweek is an act of worship, a holy calling of God. But here's the next important question. To what end? To what end? If work is doing something with what God has given us, then the next question is why? What is the purpose? If I were to ask you to complete that definition of work, to fill in the blanks, what would you say? Work is doing something with what God gives you so that what? So that I can make a living? So that I can take care of my family? So that I can feel significant, so that I can make a name for myself, so that I can succeed, so that I can retire comfortably? What, a, what is the why to this definition? Aren't those the answers we would expect from our culture? Make a living, make a name for yourself, succeed, make a difference. Why do we work? Because we have student loans to pay off and because we want to put a roof over our head and because we're tired of eating top ramen. How many of you ate a lot of top ramen when you were a a student? I guarantee you, I did. Because we'd like to buy a car and take a vacation once in a while. We'd like to make memories with our family and we'd like to find a time when we don't have to work quite so hard so that we can travel and see the world. Is that the why? Is there anything wrong with any of those answers? No. But here's the important question. Are they enough? No. They are not enough. Is there something missing? Yes, I think there is something missing. And it's the part that makes the difference in the world. All the difference in the world, literally. And so that brings us to the next phrase in our definition. Here it is. Work is doing something with what God has given us so that the world thrives and Jesus is glorified. We're going to deal with that last phrase next week. Today, it's the world thrives. How many of you heard your parents say it sometime? The world doesn't owe you anything. Right? You hear that? The world doesn't owe you anything. We need to be preaching that more, I think, today, by the way. But I wonder if you agree with the blogger whose website says, I don't owe the world anything either. Hmm, is that right? That's not what the Bible seems to teach. So I'm going to read a passage from Genesis where we've been living these last few weeks. And as I read this, I want you to answer this question to yourself. What is the picture of the world that this passage paints? What is the kind of world that this passage captures as we are reading it? So would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, right near the front of the Bible, about as front as you could get. Genesis chapter 2. We're actually going to start at verse 4. Verse 4. Again, you're asking the question, what kind of a world is being portrayed here? Here it goes. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, 
And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there, too. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, would you take these ancient words that we have read so many times, would you make them come to life for us so that in believing them, we might help our world to thrive? For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. So when you listen to the reading, what is the image that you have of the world that God created? What kind of a world did he make? Is it a world of scarcity? Is is it a world that provides only enough to get by? No! The world of God's creation is a world of plenty. It is a world that flourishes. It is a world that teems. When he plants the garden called Eden, he doesn't drop a few trees in there to provide enough food for his new humans to survive. Verse 9 says that God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. You begin to sense the lavishness of God's work, the excess. He doesn't just make some trees, he makes all kinds of trees. He doesn't just make trees that are nourishing, he makes trees that are good for food. He doesn't just make trees that are good for food. He makes trees that are pleasing to the eye, too. They are beautiful. He doesn't plant a garden in which human beings can survive. He plants a garden where humans can what? Thrive. Can you see this in your mind's eye? Maybe it conjures up some visit to some lush tropical setting that you have gone to in your travels. A a garden that was so green, so lush, so beautiful, so fragrant, so delicious that it floods the senses and floods the souls with God's goodness. And it's not just the garden that thrives in this new world of God's creation. We hear of Four great rivers, not just one or two. Why have one or two when four would do? We hear a description of a, of a place where gold can be found, and not just any gold. What kind of gold? Good gold. Is there another? One might ask. But then you think, wait a second, why do you need gold? 
There is no monetary system. There's no one to buy something from. So what is good about gold? How about this? It is beautiful. Isn't it? And, is, and so is the black onyx. And so is the fragrant resin that is described. Why are all those things included in there? To give us an idea of the lavishness of God's creation. He creates a world that is more than adequate. He creates a world that is more than just enough. He creates a world that is extravagantly beautiful, extravagantly generous, extravagantly good. And it is into this world that the man is placed to work and subdue and have dominion over and tend and care for. In other words, God offers to Adam the gift of an extravagant world. And then he says, this is what is possible. This is what I have created. This is what I intend. Now I hand it to you to steward. And I expect you to work in order that it will continue to thrive. And God the Son picks right up where God the Father left off, doesn't he? Everything that Jesus touched thrived. Think of his first miracle at the wedding of Cana. You remember that? They ran out of wine, which was an enormous social faux pas at the time. They ran out of wine, and so Jesus is asked to intercede. And now, he didn't just supply enough wine for them to get by, although that in itself would have been pretty impressive. No, no, no. Jesus, Jesus takes 180 gallons of water, and he transforms them into 180 gallons of wine. And we're not talking Thunderbird here. This this is Chateau Lafitte, 1869, $233,000 a bottle. This is the best wine that the steward had ever tasted. The party thrived. When Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, when they are done, they have 12 baskets of leftovers. The crowd thrived. Jesus gave sight to the blind, skin to the leprous, legs to the lame, Jesus raised up the widow's dead son. Everything Jesus touched thrived. His whole ministry, his whole work was bringing thriving to his world. Work is doing something with what God gives you so that the world thrives and Jesus is glorified. That is a biblical definition of work. But you might say, wait a minute. There's nothing in this about taking care of my family. Surely somewhere, somewhere in this definition there ought to be something about a, a roof over our heads and beans on the table, shouldn't there? Isn't that an important part of work? And I would say, of course it is. That is part of your world that needs to thrive, isn't it? That's part of your world that needs to thrive. It is clear from the entire reading of Genesis that, that Adam was given the task of working and tending and subduing this garden in part so that he could care for his wife and his family. It is my work to help my particular corner of the world thrive. I am to provide for my family and to house them and feed them and clothe them and educate them and entertain them and enrich them. I want that part of my world to thrive. And it is clearly God's intent that I assume dominion over that part of the world over which no one else can be called to care for in the way that I should and can. But as I thought about this over these last weeks and prayed about my work, I have come to realize that 
That is not my problem. I understand pretty clearly my call to work so that my corner of the world will thrive. I get that. But I have come to realize this about myself in these last weeks as I've been living into these texts. I can be self-centered. Selfish, even. You don't need to say yes to that one. (laughs) You testify to your own sin, brother. But it's true. I realize that it's very easy for me to be selfish. My definition of world is very small. I'm going to give you a peek into my life. I like to cloister myself. I I like to hunker down in my corner of the world and frankly hide. We have an acre of land. You have to drive over a bridge across our creek to get to our house. It feels like a, a drawbridge over the moat protecting my little castle, and I like it. <laughs> Maybe it's because of the nature of my work. Maybe it's the feeling of living in a fishbowl for 26 and a half years. But when I go home, I often feel like I want to hide from the world. I will take care of my little kingdom. I will work hard so that my portion of the world flourishes. But really, my world's boundary lines end at my property line. Can any of you relate to that? And I'm not very proud of this as I've reflected on this, but it has been what I think the Spirit has been stirring in me over these last couple months. As I've been thinking about my work in the light of this sermon series... My world is pretty small. The part of my world I really care most about, the the part I really want to thrive, is pretty tiny, really. My family, my church, and that's the only time you'll hear me say that phrase. And I have been convicted that I cannot expect my congregation to reach out and to live in community and to care about this world's thriving if I hide behind my own drawbridge. And so, as I've thought about this, I have confessed my self-centeredness to the Lord. And I began to look for ways that I could work so that the world that is bigger than my self-interests could also thrive. And I've found several. I'm only going to share one. I'm helping a family remodel a home where they'll get a new start on life. Demolishing walls, laying subflooring and laminate and moving cabinets. I've been doing this on some of the days after my workday at church. And I'm not just organizing others to do these things, which I'm very good at. (laughs) I'm doing these things because I realize my soul needs this. I needed to draw the boundaries of my world more widely than my own self-interests. Because I've discovered in writing sermons for you that I too have been created by God to help His world thrive by my work. A world that extends beyond my property lines and my bank accounts. This has been an epiphany for me, honestly. A revealing. Something that many of you, especially those of you who have turned your retirement into second careers of service, you've already discovered this. Cindy and I are going to be empty nesters in three and a half weeks. And we're trying to imagine what this season of our lives will look like. And in doing so, God has been kind enough to show us that 
the sense of purpose and fulfillment that comes from caring about a world that is bigger than our little garden. This work that we've been doing, this different kind of work for me, which I love, by the way, but it's hard and muscle-aching and back-bending and ibuprofen-popping <laughs> work. It's about more than enriching myself or paying off our house a little faster or fattening my retirement account. It's about helping the world to thrive, a bigger world to thrive. And as I have done that, I have thrived. Why should this be a surprise to me? But I have been amazed at how thriving this experience has been for me. So it does make me wonder, isn't this one of the key issues facing many of us here this morning? It's not that we don't want to work hard so that our world can thrive. It's that our definition of world can be so narrow and self-serving. We work hard to provide a beautiful home so that our families can thrive. But we don't really think about the family that needs a home. We work hard to haul our children and our grandchildren from sporting event to music event to dramatic event so that they will thrive. But we really don't think about children that have no such opportunities. We work hard so that our retirement will thrive, but don't really think about using those years to help others thrive. Our worlds are too small for most of us. I think it's why there's so many here who are not very generous in supporting our church, your church or anyone else for that matter. It's why so many of us do not feel fulfilled in what we do. It's why so many of us are disappointed with life even though by the world's standards we have material wealth and opportunity that beggar the imagination. Our world is too small for most of us and we are missing out on the blessing of work that helps a larger world to thrive. I wonder how it would change your work if you ask yourself this question. Am I helping the world thrive by what I do and the way I do it? Is the world thriving because of the joyful way that I prepare that latte? Is the world thriving because I pick up your garbage? Is the world thriving because you spend your retirement building houses for the poor? Is the world thriving by the way you raise your children and grandchildren? Is the world thriving because your company creates jobs and wealth for other families? Is the world thriving because you care deeply about the health of every patient who walks into your clinic? How would it change your approach to work if at the end of every day you could declare, because of how I worked today, this world thrives a bit more? This Memorial Day, it seems a particularly appropriate day to ask such a question, don't you think? For no nation on earth has worked harder. No nation has contributed more of its own lifeblood than that of the United States of America that the rest of the world might thrive. There are plenty of things that are wrong with us, plenty of things for which to repent, things which need changing, things which do not please God, I know. But it can still be fairly said that the work of the United States has helped the larger world to thrive. May it always be so. May we always have a heart 
and I for something greater than our own prosperity and freedom. And I want that to be said of us too, don't you? Of us too, don't you? I want it to be said that because of how the saints of Chapel Hill work, work in their vocation, work in their home, work in their retirement, doing something with what God has given us, because of that, I want it to be said that because of that, our world thrives. Is that so for you? If you left with one question this morning, perhaps it would be the one I've been asking myself these last weeks. Is my world too small? Do I care if the world thrives beyond the limits of my property line, my bank account, my family, my retirement, my fiefdom? Is that the purpose of my work? So I urge you, go ahead, think about it. And I hope it makes you as uncomfortable as it made me. And I hope you repent about it and do something with what God has given you so that the world might thrive and Jesus be glorified. Amen? I want to close our day today with what we've been doing these last weeks. I want to honor you as you step out into the workplace tomorrow. And especially on this day, I would like to honor those who are going to be prepared to place themselves in harm's way tomorrow morning. So if you're a member of the military or you are a a member of a police department or a sheriff department or the fire department, if you are one whose very nature of your job is to place yourself at risk so that we might thrive, could I ask you to stand up? Maybe you do that part-time, maybe you're in the reserves, maybe you're full-time, but I just want to pray for you. I see sheriff, I see fire department. I don't know all of you. I see military. Would you extend your hand towards these, I think, men? Is there a woman? Oh, good, good, awesome, and women. And would you join me in, in thanking God and blessing them? Lord, thank you for the work that these people do. Thank you for the way our world thrives because there are some who are willing to go in to run into the places that we want to run away from, to run towards the people we want to run away from, to run towards battles that we want to stay clear of. Thank you for those who are willing to lay their lives on the line in service to us. And thank you that our world thrives because fires get put out more quickly and bad guys get caught quicker and hearts get started again and bad regimes get held in check. Would you bless them, Lord? Would you give them a sense that their work is worship to you? Would you give them the clarity of thinking that what they do helps your world to thrive? And would they find deep a deep sense of worth and value in that. We honor them and we lift them up to you this day. And all of God's people agreed with me and said, thank you, thank you. You may be seated. I want to invite our prayer team to come forward.
and uh, invite you to come up after the service if there's anything at all that you would like to lay before the Lord. They would love to do that with you, okay? Meantime, let's receive a blessing from God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said,